following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Welcome to the book of Ruth. Grab your Bibles in front of you. Um, if you don't have one, all right, you brought the pew in front of you or the, the seat in front of you. Um, Ruth 1 is going to start on page 222, if you don't know where it's at. It's also the eighth book of the Bible, um, relatively early book that we're looking at, um, and we want you to be a part. So, um, at the Elder Retreat, a few months ago, we took a time out to look at this, our current state and what we're doing, and how are we going to finish up, at the time we were getting ready to finish up Mark, and we're looking and saying, okay, what are we going to do in the meantime? So we kind of laid out this summer, and if you've been with us this summer, you know we've kind of been a little bit different in our approach. Uh, we have done church history series where we've gone through different steps in church history and relayed the theological significance of those, both theological and practical for us, where we come out with so many different dom- denominations and these different heresies that we have seen happen and that are still happening because people are still sinful. Um, along the lines, we decided on, and really Stacy decided on, and we worked through and he said, I'm going to tackle Galatians in the fall. So September 11th, we will begin Galatians. Uh, that's an exciting time for us. That'll be a, a, a nice big chunk that we're going to go after again and expositorily go through it, exposing the text, looking at what it has to tell us, and we are responding to it. So what's these next four weeks going to be between now and basically when we start in September? Today is our first installment on the book of Ruth. Um, we looked and said, well... Chris, can we do, they asked me, could you, get, could you do maybe four in August? Could you do that? So July 31st is effectively starting our month, um, and we're going to do today and the next three. We're going to take these four sermons, and we're going to go through the book of Ruth. It's a short book. Um, it's a book that is uh, easy to read. It's actually a joy to read. Um, it's full of literary beauty. It's got uh, very many important names in it. It's got a lot of clever innuendos. It's got famine to fullness. We've seen that up on the slide the past few weeks. Uh, it helps us see God at work in the everyday decisions of life. It also is all about God's constant hesed, or it's a Hebrew term for understanding covenant faithful love to his people. And we're going to see this throughout the book of Ruth. Now, all these themes will come out as we work through and we'll watch the author use this story, which is a real story. It's not just a made-up story. He uses this story to tell us all these things and kind of give us a window into the inner workings of God's hand of sovereignty in our lives, in his people's lives. We aren't just going through Ruth, you know, because we want to pay our dues to 2 Timothy 3.16, you know, that, you know, all Scripture is good for something. But that's not why we're here. Um, it's not just another thing to do. This is an important book for us and has relevancy to today, to our everyday lives. And as we go on, as you'll see over the next few weeks, it becomes very apparent that God is concerned about not only the large picture, but even the minute details that he orchestrates and puts together. So as we do so, um, my, my mind has been totally blown watching the, our author bring to light and bring all these different pieces together to show the characters and the story that they go through, but also really the intricacy with which God has placed these things together. And as we look at history, and I know I had a, I had a professor who would call it his story, we would see that all these different pieces are really 
part of a larger story to bring honor and glory to King Jesus. So that's where we're going long term. We have a little bit of difficulty with the, the approach here, though. Let me, I'll speak to that in a minute. As we do this, I want you to be an active reader. You guys, we are the readers here. We're coming into the story. We need to be willing and eager to read, ready to put the pieces of the story together like any good story. I think we become lazy readers often. I want you to engage and think through these things. This is not just my task. This is your task as well, to not take this lightly, but to work with this text and understand it. So look for the clues. Listen for things like repetition or specific things that you hear over and over again, maybe use differently. Those are all going to be important literary devices for us to pick up on in this little narrative. And uh, if you can recognize what the author is doing, even predict it and start to see, look for it. See if he'll, if he'll bring it up again, and you're going to see that happen. So the story really, <laughs> I don't think I'm overstating it. The story is so good that like, I, I, I battled whether or not to tell you don't read it yet because I want to read it to you. Like, but that's stupid, so please feel free to read it. It's scripture and you should read it. But it, uh, I don't want to give anything away, but man, it's so good and it, it is, it's very digestible. So if you got it right there in front of you, you see it's only like two or three pages long, depending on your, your, your copy of Scripture. Um, the approach here, like I said, though, is going to be a little different. Because it's such a short story, it was meant to be digested as a whole in one big chunk. Now, I considered doing that, and there's, there's guys who do that, and they do it well. I don't think I'm skilled enough to do that well. And instead, as we talked, as elders we talked, went through this approach, I said, I think I can do it well in four, in four sermons. So we can break some of these pieces down and make sure we don't miss some of the significance along the way. Because if we do a real high level and drive by at once, which would be good, and we will kind of do that at the end as well. We'll kind of summarize it and bring it back together. But if we were to do that, we'd miss some of the intricacies that we need to really think on. And it needs to change our lives today, tomorrow, the next day. So that is why we're going to take four weeks to work through this, and our approach will be uh, to just, just bring it out a little bit. Now, this is going to take a little bit of patience and uh, control on my part, and it's going to take a little bit of work on yours as well to both think and remember what we talked about the week prior. I'll bring you up to speed, but again, we'll work together so that we can work through this story. Um, so go home. It's very easy to read this. Or a second thing that maybe a good thing for your family to do would be to sit and listen to it. There's tons of good audible Bible you know, opportunities. Feel free to take some time. Take an hour out of your day or sometime during the week or maybe installments and read through the whole thing. But again, it will bring you much value if we bring it as a whole and start to understand it. So without further ado, we will just read chapter 1 today and start working through it. Again, 2.22 if you have that Bible in front of you. If not, Ruth 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, 
from, from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from that place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your, her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. What's the setting? No prologue needed here. Immediately our author jumps in, right? Uh, he tells us everything right in the first sentence. Almost as though, like, yeah, get up to speed with me. I got stuff to talk to you about. Right away, in the days of the, when the judges ruled, right, that's very significant, there was a famine in the land, also very significant. The little phrase here would have rung in their ears, a days when the judges ruled. Like for us, when, when I say something along the lines of, uh, the force is strong with this one, or to infinity and beyond, or it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. When I use these types of phrases, they all come with baggage. And actually, for the point of some author here, it's actually helpful baggage. They want to bring into that conversation the background and make sure they bring you up to speed. Instead of going back and giving you a whole history of all about this, he says, in the days when the judges ruled. They got it. They knew exactly what it meant. First of all, it's historical context. It actually happened. It's happening somewhere between the time of, you know, be before the time of, actually after Joshua, before you get to Saul, the time of the kings. This is an actual historical context. 
It's also, in fact, really kind of tongue-in-cheek. Because if you know anything about the book of Judges, you remember that's why it's not called kings. No one was ruling. No one was leading. In fact, by the end of Judges, you're like, oh my goodness, we need a leader. Like no one's stepping up to do the right thing. They had some deliverers along the way, some judges who really carried out what God wanted them to do. Really, he saved them over and over and over through specific people. But the truth of the matter is no one was leading. And so even, even in his opening comment, when the days when the judges ruled, <laughs> ha, 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 that's not actually what happened, but I know what you're saying. You're talking about a time of lawlessness. You're talking about a time of sin. You're talking a time, probably the, if you know anything about Judges, you probably remember the phrase, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is not a time that's happy. This is a dark time within Israel's history. So it's a theological statement here, uh, or a historical statement, excuse me. But the second one is important for, for really one important reason. There's a famine in the land. You say, okay, yeah, that's bad. You know, that's, we don't want a famine. So What? Well, there's a much larger problem. That's a, that's a physical problem, but there's a much larger problem here because it's a famine in the land of God's people. So the law, the first five books of the Bible, talk about feast and famine over and over again. Talk about obedience and covenant faithfulness and disobedience and, and judgment from God. Leviticus 26, 18 through 20 and Deuteronomy 28, 23 through, four, through 24. I'm not going to read them. I just want to reference them. These are explicit about understanding that when those things are not right, when we have not obeyed, when God's people do not pay attention, do not obey, and are faithless, he says, I will close up the heavens. I will make the heavens like bronze and the earth like iron. In other words, this famine is a theological issue. There has been covenant unfaithfulness on the part of Israel, on the part of the, God's people. The famine is a form, then, of God's judgment because of their unfaithfulness. This is the context. Now let's meet our characters. We get right into it. We have four characters right from the beginning. There's the father, Elimelech. We have the mother, Naomi. We have son one, Malon, and son two, Chilion. Interestingly enough, our author is uh, also going to play with words. Elimelech means God is king. Naomi means pleasantness or lovely. Malon, I don't know why I would name their child this, but I'm sorry if your child's named Malon. Um, it means infirmity. And uh, we have Chilion, which means the pining one. That would be like to lose vigor, to lose health. Now, he may use these for several different things. Perhaps they personify someone. Perhaps there will be a bit of irony somewhere along the road. Like I said, this author is using words on purpose, and it's not a fluke that these are their names. It's not like their names are just Ryan and, I don't know, Jimmy. They have very specific names on purpose. The cast is set, the characters are in our drama ready, and immediately we've got trouble. Not only is there famine, but we encounter this man, Elimelech, a man from Israel, who is traveling to the country of Moab, and he has taken his family. And it's not a vacation. The text says, and they remained there. Let me explain why this is bad. So we have Moses leading the people out of Egypt, right? They go into the desert. Where are they headed to? They're headed to the promised, the promised land. 
They're headed to the place where God will make a way for them to live and dwell and be a light to the nations where they would have rest and peace. This happens and the people are living in this area and instead of living in this area and being a light to the nations, uh, Elimelech's family is leaving. It's a problem. Let me go one step further because the text does here and tells us for me, he's from a little town called Bethlehem. Yes, that Bethlehem. You, know, uh, you might think of this as like a Burl Ives Christmas song, but the original readers, they know Hebrew well, and they know that Bethlehem would be the house of bread, house of food, house of or place of provision. Do you get it? He's using this very on purpose. They're leaving Bethlehem. In other words, it's a place of physical provision, but instead of turning from sin to God in faith, remember we talked about the famine, there's a problem. Instead of repenting and turning to God, this family, unfortunately, the opening scene reveals that a family is turning away from God and going away to satisfy themselves some other way to look for food. If you're not getting the picture, this is a very bad choice for our, for our leader here, Elimelech. You know, he's doing what is right Interesting enough, he's in the time of judges. He's doing what is right in his own eyes. Plus, like we said his name before, he is not living up to his namesake. He is not evidencing that God is his king. Not only are they going away, but they're going away someplace specific, Moab. Now, this is, everyone that reads this would have gone, oh my goodness, why did they do that? This is important. Do you remember the origin story for Moab? Remember Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot leaves the city. This is Abraham's nephew. He goes and he runs to a cave with his daughters to make sure they're safe and they're safe there. And they're kind of stuck there. They don't have a place to go. They're, the daughters realize there's not a lot of hope for them and they have no chance at a family. So the daughters get their dad drunk and they sleep with him. This is exactly what they decide to do. And the firstborn's daughter is named, her son is named Moab. This is the start of the Moabite people. Not only that, further Moab is a nation that uh, when they did, when the nation of Israel did leave on the Exodus, when they did leave Egypt, Moab is a place that they came and approached a place and they said, can we walk through here? And they said, no, we have to walk around. A pain in their side, not a helpful place. One more thing is in uh, Numbers 25, we read about the daughters of Moab seducing Israel's men to whore after them and to turn their hearts to their several different idols. And this is where Elimelech decides to take his family, right into the heart of rebellion against God. Bad start. Let's pick up in verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. She's left with her two sons. It's gone from bad to worse. Naomi's husband has died. This is a big deal, and everyone would understand. I want to make sure I tread lightly here. It is a big deal when anyone dies. But if I can talk about the economy of the family and the way that things work in a society, this is terrible for her. The woman doesn't go out and get her insurance paid. The woman doesn't go out and get education so that she can now pick up her own job. She is devastated. And the only people that she has left in her life right now are two sons. Now, at this time, we don't know how old they are. We do know the next thing that they decide to do is to get married. They, they, have, they get married. Verse 4, these took Moabite wives, 
The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other, Ruth. We don't know anything about them. They're Moabites. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilion died. So that the, whim, the woman, singular, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now it's gone from worse, went from bad to worse. It's gone from worse to worse yet. There are three women trying to survive with no breadwinners, no one to take care of them, and the matriarch of the group is from a, she's in a foreign land where she's not supposed to be in the first place. This is a bad situation. And this is our introduction. She has been stripped of everything. There's a famine in the land. No worries, we'll just go to Moab. Her provider and friend, her husband, dies. Okay, that's all right. My boys will take care of things. It'll be okay. We'll, we'll make it somehow. Her sons both die. And she's got nothing, not even grandchildren. Think about that. Ten years. This is not ten, sorry. Ten years. Ten years and no grandchildren. Nothing from this time. She is destitute. In fact, it's worse than that. Now she has two liabilities. She has two daughters-in-law who offer her nothing because they haven't produced any children and they don't have a husband anymore. They can't do anything for her. She has liabilities now with her. The choice to move away from the house of bread has ended in disaster. But it is at this time that she receives word that the Lord has visited his people and she begins to realize that she has only one good opportunity to go back and potentially eat the scraps from the table of those that are in Bethlehem. There is food in the house of bread again. This is a good thing. This is a good thing. It may seem small to us, but this is, a, this is again, a theological statement. Something has happened. Her time away from her home has produced nothing but heartache and pain. At least there's potential for food back home, even if God would be willing to allow her to eat the scraps from the edges of the fields and like pick up after and, and you know, maybe that they could help her out somehow and kind of, you know, be the lowest of low, but at least she could eat that way. Is this beginning to sound familiar to anyone? A family going away to a far off country to fulfill themselves away from the one who could provide for them? thinking that doing so would bring them happiness and fulfillment, and it does for a time. And then the good fortune runs out. The money runs out. The life runs out. And the family is beginning to realize that home may be a better place to go, even just to, just to survive. Naomi is curiously starting to look like the prodigal son. Not making a one-for-one -one comparison, but realize the sin and what it has led to. This doesn't mean that she has repented or come to peace with God. We're going to see. That's not true here as we go on. But something is certainly happening that is drawing Naomi back to God's work, back to his presence, back to where she's supposed to be from the beginning. So they get on the road to Bethlehem. They begin to travel back. And Naomi can't do it anymore. She's like, girls, I, this is wrong. I can't take you back into this. She sends them back to their own country. This is a big speech she's about to make. This may have sound selfish, like she's saying, she, she sees them as a liability, and it seems selfish to send them back. As, you know, I don't want to carry these two liabilities. I know I'm going to face scorn and possible discrimination against two foreigners from Moab coming back with me. That's not good for them either. You know, but maybe self-interest here, I'm not sure. Um, it's certainly not an asset to Naomi, these girls. But before we blame her too strongly, let's look at the context 
It's also likely that she really just wants to be good to the girls too, to give them a life so they can actually go back and live. They have a real shot, another life. They're still young. They still have a chance. They're both still young and have lots of potential. Listen as I read. She says this, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. She actually thanks them and prays for them. She recognizes that they've been good daughters-in-law. They've been good to her, they've been good to the boys. She's saying thank you. However, she's asking, no, she's really telling them, go back and get married. Go back and get married. You can't, you can't live this life with me. This is, this, is a, this is a really emotional scene. Like if you can kind of picture this, you've got the motivational speech, like this huge motivational speech, and you've got the goodbye kisses, and people are crying everywhere. I mean, the prayer for Naomi, for the girls, and it's almost like, you know, you have the soundtrack from The Last of the Mohicans like playing in the background. Like it's so overwhelming and emotional. And in it... The girls respond, no, we will not return. We will go to your people. Naomi's prepared for this. She's like, yeah, you're good girls. You'll say that kind of stuff. She's ready to give them a real reason. There is nothing for them to go back to with her. There's nothing for them to go back to with her. She says, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Are you going to wait out for that? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night, tonight if I get married and, and have a baby and, or get, get pregnant and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they're grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? Let me answer, no, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the Lord, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. It's not you, it's me. No, but seriously, it's me. Naomi says, straightforward, if you stay with me, you'll be part of this great emptiness that God has put upon me, and I will be exceedingly bitter. Is that what you really want for your life, girls? Go home. It's not fair that you have to come with me, the one that has been judged by God. Go, go home. I love you. I give you my best. Go. Don't go with me. This is the first time, by the way, in on her lips, we are seeing Naomi recognize something. See how she says this? The recognition is not, my luck has been terrible. And this really stinks. She recognizes that this is the Lord's hand that has gone out against me. That's important. Maybe not exactly what we really want to hear from Naomi. We'd much rather hear like, oh, I shouldn't have done that and I'm paying for my consequences, but God is good. And, you know, like, like you would hope that like something like that would be better. That's not where we're really at. But you got to remember, people, this lady has just lost everything. She lost her husband. She has no husband. She has no sons. She has no grandsons. And the hand of the Lord has gone out against her because of her sin. She knows what lies before her. An ugly, hard life of judgment as a widowed, broken, bitter old woman. Not a good life. And they weep again. So, and we watch this in the play. We watch it happen. Orpah kisses her mother. She turns. 
and she walks right out of the book of Ruth. We don't see her anymore. But Ruth, ah, Ruth. I come to the first defining moment of Ruth in our story. She doesn't kiss and fly. She clings to, to Naomi. She holds on. Naomi looks down, picking up Ruth's head. You can see this emotional steam. The music's almost over. And she directs her, her, her view back and says, Look, see your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Go, go. Pleading with her to do this. But Ruth will not be dissuaded. Ruth is not going. She is clinging. This is, reminds me of my children when they cling onto my leg and I'm trying to get out the door to work and I'm doing one of these numbers. You know? So, like, I don't think that's exactly what happened, but you understand Ruth is not going to be dissuaded. Rather, she's about to make one of, the most one of the most famous speeches in all the Bible. Probably some of you have actually either heard it before or maybe even some of you may have had it in your marriage ceremonies. We have a huge nugget. Get ready. This is what she's going to say. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people, they should be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death departs me from you. So Ruth hasn't said a peep up until this time. And if you didn't know that the, 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 the book was named Ruth, you're totally blindsided by this. What? Where in the world did this come from? That's, do we know this girl? Who, who is she? They married Moabite wives, Orpah and Ruth. Remember, that was her introduction. Not only has Ruth made her first speech, it's a whopper. <laughs> have Elimelech and Naomi been such shining examples to Ruth and Orpah that they have converted her? Now she is, I am, I, am, I am after your God now. Yeah, right. Look at them. They've made nothing but wrong choices the whole time. Why in the world did this happen? We don't know. But it is with crystal clarity, the author has shown us the character of Ruth right from the beginning of her first speech. We're seeing it. We don't know, again, but there are questions here. We were ex he has explained to us that this girl is so full of character. She's willing to leave all the best possible prospects in her fleeting young life to follow an old, bitter woman back to a life of poverty and scorn. That's what she's chosen here. She's not ignorant of what she's doing. She's binding herself to Naomi. Look at what she says. Let's, let's go over this a little slower. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. In other words, you're not getting rid of me. I'm staying here. I'm here to stay. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. In other words, I will not be going back to visit my family for Christmas vacation or for summer break. I'm here with you forever. I am now, by the way, an Israelite. And by the way, I'm forsaking my religion and my gods to take hold of yours. That's huge. That's huge. She may not understand what she's actually saying at that point, but she is dedicated to Naomi. You're not getting rid of me. Where you die, I will die. In other words, after you die, I'm not going back to Moab to live and die with my blood family. No, I am now part of your family. I am your daughter-in-law. Now I'm your daughter. So much so, like, the significance here is that I will be buried where you are buried. That means that you're part of that family. Does that make sense? Like, you don't, you don't just 
die with your husband, and then that's an older situation here. We talked about Abraham before, where he had bought a, he had bought a place for his dead to be buried, and they're buried together. When he, she says this, I'll be buried with you, she is saying, no, 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 I'm part of your family. I'm here. I'm part of this family. And just to seal the deal, by the way, she pronounces a curse on herself if she decides not to fulfill the this commitment. Not a small thing. Wow. I've been wrestling with this all like for like two weeks, trying to understand why in the world would Ruth do this? Like what does she have to go to? Nothing. There's no earthly good reason for her to do this. She has no prospects. She has no children. She has no provider. She has no family. She has no familiarity. She has no resources. And by the way, the company along the way really stinks. She's going to be staying with a bitter old hag. I can't come up with one good reason for Ruth to do this. Not one. But maybe that's the wrong question. Maybe I'm asking something that wasn't the intention of the author. Maybe answering that from a human perspective doesn't matter at all. Could it be that the God of Abraham, the God who called Abraham to leave his brethren, do you remember this? He calls his brethren, he calls Abraham to leave his brethren and to go to a far off country. Could it be that this is the same God that's working in Ruth? Or could it be that Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, the God who gives grace and faith is the one that's at, at, at play here? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Could it be that God, the God who gives grace through faith, is the very same one that's really putting this undying commitment into Ruth's heart? I think so. Ruth gives a compelling speech of utter commitment, undying commitment to, to, to Naomi. But she never tells us why. I'm not here to say that with, with clarity that this is necessarily her conversion statement where, where Ruth becomes a believer in Yahweh. It's possible, and there are some authors that are, you know, along the people who have looked at this scripture and said, this is hers, because using covenant language very much so. I'm not here to say that specifically because I'm not sure that's what the text calls for. It certainly is going to show us that she is committed, though, to Naomi. And it is certainly important and it's clear that this is what placed her in the middle of God's covenant love. It brought her back to a Moabite from a foreign land brings her into the house of bread, into God's provision. This is clearly a big deal. Orpah decides to make a logical decision and forever walks out of the pages of the Bible. No one blames her. I mean, she's not a dirty, rotten scoundrel for making the choice to go home necessarily, but it does have consequences. Make no mistake. She goes back to living and living it that way, and does that mean, well, God will still love her? No, we're not talking about universalism. She probably died and went to hell. Not making light of this. Her choices did have a consequence, though. And Ruth, however, God puts in this thing, and she responds in grave commitment to Naomi, which leads her again back to the house of bread. This is not of little consequence. Ruth decided to follow Naomi back to the center of where he's working. Back to the story. After this stunning speech from Ruth, she is met with crickets. Naomi saw she was determined to go with her. She said no more. <laughs> That's it. She didn't say, hey, well, thanks, thanks for coming along the journey, friend. You know, I'm really thankful. Or thanks, you know, it'll be tough, but we can do it together. Or, that was a nice speech. She said no more. That was it. 
they head back to Bethlehem. By the way, she said no more yet. Now, as we look and we turn the corner, we start going back in. I want you to notice that it talks about a stir was in the city. It's like a buzz. The word the words being used here in Hebrew is really talking about a jubilant, excited, um, forward-looking excitement. It's not like a hush, like, oh man, did you see this? Like a bad thing. It's actually a buzz when they hear that Naomi is coming back into the city. We don't hear it. We don't hear a lot about the journey, but the author skips right to the important part. Probably a lot of the people in this area knew that Elimelech had died. They'd probably gotten word, maybe some of her family, his extended family back in Bethlehem, they probably knew at least that he had died. And the fact that Naomi's coming back is a good thing. Coming back to the house of bread, coming back to larger overall picture Israel, the larger family of God, his clan back home. The narrator puts one phrase on the lips of greeting crowds of women. So if you'd gotten the text, it was something like this. Is this Naomi? Emoji, big smiley face. Hashtag, can't believe it's finally back. Exclamation point, exclamation point. It's an excitement. Hey, Naomi's back. This is great. And now is a good time for us to return to the meaning and significance of Naomi's name. Do you remember we talked about this? Something, a question is kind of like this. Is this the one who is called Pleasant, returned home again after such a long time in a foreign land? Is she finally back? Remember Naomi's response to uh, Ruth's beautiful speech? And she said no more. Prepare for what Naomi really wanted to say. And now she's got an audience that will understand her well. They knew Elimelech. They understood the clan situation. She says back to them, Naomi? No. Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. In other words, do not smile and call me the pleasant one. Call me the bitter old hag. Why? Because the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And since I have your attention, folks, let me expound a little bit why I would take such a horrendous name. I went away full. I'm reading this now. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? She's saying, people, don't you get it? I had a husband. I had two sons. I had oodles of potential. I went to Moab full. I was happy. I was fulfilled, brimming with life and happiness. But now I have no husband. I have no kids. I have no grandkids. And I have no potential. And let me put the onus back on someone else here. It was God who brought me back empty. I went away full. God brought me back empty. I'm nothing but bitter. Why would anyone call me pleasant when God has judged me and has sentenced me to an unhappy life of misery? Do you really think I'm happy about my life? Do you really think my name's appropriate, everybody? Happy, joy, joy? No, call me Mara, bitter. Can you imagine the ladies who uh, asked the original question? The one that said, sent the text, is this Naomi? Talk, talk about crickets. <laughs> Okay, Mara. All right. See you later. All has been cleared up now. We know exactly what Naomi thinks. We know what her thoughts are, her feelings. She's explained it very well for us. 
were very clear that she believes that God has judged her and has orchestrated the events of her life to bring her to the point of devastation and emptiness. By the way, she doesn't have it quite right. She has part of it right. She hasn't got the whole thing right. And so the narrator comes back in to close out the first chapter. He says this, So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So let me spend a minute here. Why so much talk, right? Like, if you look at that verse there, it's like way longer than it needs to be. Like, why didn't he just say, and they returned to Bethlehem? Or, if, and they returned to Bethlehem, that which is in barley harvest. Why all this other stuff? St. Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her. We know all this. Who returned from the country of Moab. Why is there so much stuff here? Let me try to take another crack at it here and see if we can pick up on this. This is important. We're going into chapter 2. There is a break here. He's summing up what has happened. The author wants us to remember how we got here. And let me rephrase it here. It's something like this. And it is in this way that Naomi returns from the foreign country of sin and sadness, which is Moab. Naomi and Ruth, the Moabite, listen up everybody, who was turned away from her home, who has turned away from her home and followed Naomi and joined with her. This odd couple is now returning to Bethlehem. Do you get it? He's like putting something back on like this was an important piece. Remember we talked about repetition at the beginning? How important some of those, like some of these literary devices we're already talking about? He's repeated something. It's important to our author. Thus, it's important to us. He's bringing something out about Ruth that's really important. She's the one that turned away from her family to come do this. And because, and because our author is smart and purposeful, by the way, he's going to tell us what these ladies came back to Bethlehem Two, they came back at the time of bar barley harvest. That's not, like, it sounds like, why is that important? Like, do you just want to keep records? Like, yes, it was time this, that, and we want a good genealogy of when this happened. No, no, no. This is a theological statement again. Kind of alluded to this before, though. Famine was a result of unfaithfulness and covenant relationship. However, now God had brought them back, not only just to rain, like he could have said that, it could have been a time of rain, but rather to the point of the, the barley is about to be harvested. Instead of the, the, the ground being iron, now it's bringing forth fruit. It's bringing forth barley. This is a huge statement of covenant faithfulness back. Somehow there's a turning back to God. So, the statement is also used, by the way, I love this, that Naomi may not have it quite right. She is bitter and she is nasty and she is old and she is angry at God and he's putting the bitterness back. But she comes back in a God-given time of fullness again, the time of harvest. Her assessment is, may not be quite right. Now, we're not sure. She could still have to be a beggar and all this kind of stuff. I get that. But there's a little bit of a nuance there saying, hey, there's something else to come, something better. Like it is the barley harvest, a huge celebratory time where God has brought rain again and there's food in the house of bread again. Naomi is complaining for emptiness, but there's a God-given time of fullness and harvest that she's going to. And it is this way that chapter one closes up. That's a wrap in chapter one. Now, if I tried to summarize and get this all done in one sermon, the one, two, three, four, that we're going to try to do this all in, which I will try to do and somewhat summarize at the end to help us bring it all together, um, I would say a few things more. We're going to kind of leave a little bit out there to work on this. 
There's things to come. We're seeing already God get involved, and we're going to see what he does in this family. We will continue to work towards that. So don't lose all this information. But since we're here, it would be irresponsible of me not to notice two things. Two things for us as listeners. This isn't just the first part of the story. There is a lot of truth here for us, but I only have time to give you two thoughts here for us to think about. Number one, from chapter one of our story, to take away, sin will always, always, always bring emptiness. Always will. God will make sure of it, by the way. We know James 1.15, uh, sin always leads to death. I am not saying if your circumstances are really bad and everything in your life is upheaval and you're going through struggles, you need to go back and find out which bad sin you did and you need to go confess that. No, 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 that's not my point. Could it have been a result of sin? Sure. We also know from Scripture that there are things, though, within, within the reality of life that people go to the grave thinking they're fine and they're happy. They never go through any struggles. But we know the truth. It leads to death and destruction and hell. Sin will always lead to emptiness and destruction. It will. Do not be deceived or fooled. It is truth. And we see it, by, by the way, by God's mercy, we see it in Naomi's life. Don't miss that. By God's mercy, he has shooken her and gotten her attention and said, listen. And she's listening. She's ticked. And again, her theology isn't quite right, but she's got it. She knows that God is the one doing this to her. And she recognizes that. I don't want us to walk away ever thinking, we're okay, just kind of live how we want to. My end will be fine, even if I don't. Most of us are committed here. I, I realize that. You're not here for no reason today. Rest assured, though, that God will answer sin. He has to because he is just and perfect. And there will be a payday. This is not meant to be a scaring thing because, by the way, Jesus took that for us. Jesus is the one who took our pain and our struggle and all of the condemnation, no condemnation now I dread. None of it is poured out on me because Jesus took it. Praise God. Sin will always end in emptiness. The second thing, I'll close. God is in full control. We've already seen it in the little pieces here and there. He is in full control and he will do what he wills. And I'll tell you, he wills. He has a plan. And again, like we talked from the beginning, history is showing his handiwork and it will continue to do so until the final consummation, until Jesus Christ will receive all glory for all of time. But in this way, we are starting to see God's control, even in these small things, directing Naomi back. By the way, he brought somebody else, a little add-on, a little parasite, Ruth. Who is the name of this book? Who is a very important character for us? And we'll get more to that later. But don't miss that under adverse circumstances, we see that God is working in these things to bring along some of the most important people that will change history. God is in full control. What's the response for us? Worship and trust. He calls us to that. Repent and believe the gospel. He talks about trusting in the Lord with all your heart. Lean on your own understandings and all of our ways. Acknowledge him. and He will direct our paths. 
He is in control and he can be trusted in your everyday and, and ultimately. So we worship him. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We are overwhelmed at your goodness and your love and the ways that you even decide to employ your, your creativity to bring about your purposes. We love you. We thank you for your grace. And we ask that you would be honored through our time in your word and that we would be changed realizing that you are a good and gracious God. In Jesus' name.